Now I want to in, invite you to kneel with me if you can, uh, and let's have a word of prayer together, and then we can get into our study. I have a lot to share with you today, uh, so I'm going to try to move a little bit more quickly than maybe I normally do, but uh, if you can, please kneel with me at this time. Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together here and worship you and sing praises to you. We thank you so much, Lord, that we uh, have a day that you created that we can come apart and we can get a taste of heaven. We can rest uh, uh, physically, uh, but we know that this is a day designed for uh, sacred things, uh, to, to, uh, to learn more about thee and and uh, to, to be drawn closer to Thee. And it's a day that You've promised to be with us and to help our spiritual condition, uh, Lord. And so we invite You here. We pray that You will bless us as You've promised. And Lord, we have those on our prayer lists that we, we uh, uh, pray for now. We petition Thee uh, for healing and uh, for guidance. Uh, there are those who have injuries. We think of Nathaniel as some stitches. You know, young boys get stitches. Uh, we pray that you'll be very near to him and help him to heal. And Olivia, uh, who, uh, who fell and, and busted her teeth up as well, um, we pray that you will heal her, that her teeth will be saved and there will be uh, no issues there. Uh, we pray for those who have lost loved ones, Jerry here, and, and we've lost uh, some in our family here recently too. And we pray that you'll help with the grieving process. And, and Lord, we're thankful and praise you for being with Susan and helping her and with her health, and and uh, we pray also for Brother Rolland, who's having, we must have a, a dental thing going on here, Lord, so please be very near to these people and uh, help them to uh, to heal. And Lord, we pray that uh, you will forgive us our sins. We claim the promises we find in the Bible, First uh, John 1, 9, we confess our sins, and we believe and trust that you will cleanse us from our unrighteousness. And Lord, this is a, this is a, a topic that uh, is vital, especially today. For we know that the time is coming where Babylon is going to reign and try to force uh, all to worship according to their uh, dictates. And we need to know who Babylon is and how we know, uh, a great way we know who Babylon is, Babylon fallen, is to know who your church is. And so, Lord, help us to understand this completely, uh, to remove any confusion. Uh, please give me the words to speak to the congregation now uh, that... that it may be clearly brought forth, and there may be understanding. I thank you, Lord, so much for Jesus and the wonderful, manifold blessings that he's given to us, especially eternal life. May we be found faithful, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, beloved, this is part two. I didn't really intend for it to be a two-parter. <laughs> That's the way it, it uh, works out sometimes. But uh, we are studying what the Bible has to say in defining God's church. I entitled the series, This Is My Body, uh, Defining God's Church. This is part two of uh, the study entitled, A Vibrant Christian Fellowship. A Vibrant Christian Fellowship. We have been studying what the Bible has to say 
about this topic. We're going to finish our look at number nine. Remember, there were ten characteristics. I'm not going to go through them again. We did that in part one. We've done that uh, throughout this series. But uh, number nine says that the body of Christ, His church, in essence, will be vibrant. That means physically and spiritually healthy as they live in Christ day to day. They will exemplify a, a vibrant Christian fellowship. And we defined what fellowship was in such last time. Uh, and as we spoke about in part one, spiritual health, you will recall, can lead to physical health, can it not? Mm-hmm. And physical health will aid in spiritual growth in Christ. If you do not have Christ, you're not spiritually unhealthy, you're what? You're dead. You're dead. Being spiritually dead leads to being physically dead. Okay, and now, again, I'm talking about the second death. Alright? And I'm speaking of the ideal uh, here, uh, the ideal health, both physically and spiritually. There are many that are spiritually healthy that have physical health issues that will not be corrected until Jesus returns. So I hope you understand what I mean here. Talking about the ideal. And the same can be said about our spiritual health as well. With Jesus, we will, getting, uh, we will be getting more and more spiritually healthy as we aid Him in His work of blotting out our sins. You see, with sin comes disease and death. Both physically and spiritually. So if we aid Jesus in His work in the sanctuary of blotting out our sins... Doesn't it make sense that we will, as our diseases are blotted out, we will be getting healthier? Okay. And in order to be vibrant and healthy spiritually, one must submit to Jesus. And when we submit to Jesus, we will become like Him. And I haven't met one person who has said that they don't want to be like Jesus. I really haven't. Even among the heathen. They see Jesus as a very good person. At least. We'll become like Him if we submit ourselves to Him. Our hearts will be filled with the love that he has its origins, we've learned in part one, in God. We will love God with all our hearts and our neighbors as ourselves. We will live Christ's life of obedient love. I want to share with you from the book Christ's Object Lessons, page 311. And I've shared this with you uh, several times before. But it is, it's so good. It's one of my favorites. This is a truth that we need to plant in our mind and in our heart. It's Christ Object Lessons, page 311. <clears throat> and I apologize for the... Uh, uh, I thought I'd sent Roland the uh, part two scriptures. Uh, I, I've added some. <laughs> uh, those have some still that uh, I'll be using today, but I've added some, and this is one of them. Christ Object Lessons, page 311. It says, when we submit ourselves to Christ, this is what happens. The heart is united with His heart. Is that something? The will is merged in His will. The mind becomes one with His mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to Him. We live His life. That's what happens when we submit ourselves to Christ. This is what it means, she says, to be clothed with the garment of His righteousness. 
Then, as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. So, what happens when we submit ourselves to Christ? Our heart is united with his heart, our will is merged with his, our mind becomes one with his, our thoughts are brought into captivity to him, and what do we live? His life. And the key is to first submit ourselves to Christ. That means to be born again, doesn't it? God has promised to change us. When we submit ourselves to Him, we live His life. We don't live our life, our life of sin. That's understandable, isn't it? Submission to God is the hardest conflict for the natural heart. Do you believe that? It is. Submission is the hardest battle. But as we look to Jesus, what happens? When we look to Jesus, even I said even among the heathen, when you look to Jesus, we're drawn to Him. And as we continue to look and be drawn, we will come to a point where we either submit our will to Him or we reject Him. And to have victory over sin, to experience fellowship with God, we must first submit to Jesus. Matthew 6.33 I hold this promise every day close to my heart. But seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. All the necessities of life. Everything you physically need. Now, not the luxuries of life, doesn't say that. Your clothing, your shelter, your food and water shall be sure. The Bible says that food and water shall be sure. Your bread and water is what it says. Okay? But seek ye first the kingdom of God. That means, what's the first thing, uh, what motivates you? Is it God? Is it doing God's will? Then submit to God. First thing. James talks about this as well. How do we have victory? We don't give in to the devil, right? Well, what do we have to do first? James says in James 4, verse 7, he says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Then resist the devil and he will flee from you. He doesn't want to be in God's presence. If you submit yourself to God, God's there. And the devil's going to flee. Amen. Draw nigh to God, James says, and He will draw nigh to you. It means draw close to Him. And He will draw close to you. Praise God that He's like that. Amen. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Don't waft back and forth. Steady your faith. Okay? The Bible says a righteous man who falls gets back up. He'll get back up seven times. Seven's a number used for perfection. It means he doesn't stop getting back up. And that grows, your trust will grow in God. So, we see this, we submit our will to God, and we begin our spiritual walk in newness of life in Christ. We are then adopted members in the family of God. We are members of His body, His church. Remember in this series, we found that wherever Jesus is, there is His church. And if Jesus is in your heart, then you're a member of His church, whether you're physically uh, with other believers or not. 
and this is the hardest truth really I have found in covering this, this is the hardest truth for many to understand. And it really amazes me. (laughs) The moment you submit and are born again, you are a member of God's church. Boom. Wherever you are. I had a lengthy discussion about this very truth with a former member who is having a very hard time understanding who and what the church is. Remember that Paul, Paul was on the road to Damascus, wasn't he? He was persecuting God's church. Does God's church persecute itself? No. No. The devil persecutes God's church, doesn't he? And so Paul's on the road to Damascus and he came face to face with the Savior. And after that conversion experience, and it was a conversion experience, was he a member of God's church right then or not? Yes. Yes, he was. He was indeed a member of God's church. Now when Paul asked Jesus, what do you want me to do? He's been converted. He recognizes it's Jesus speaking to him. His heart is converted. He asked the Lord, what do you want me to do, Lord? What did Jesus do? He directed him to the faithful church of believers at Damascus. Didn't he? He was sent to the faithful organization, not the fallen one. He didn't say, go back to Jerusalem and convert those that sent you. He didn't send him to Damascus and say, said, go to Damascus and go to the synagogue. Did he? He sent him to Damascus and he had Ananias come and get him. God wanted him to fellowship with the faithful people at Damascus. Notice that Paul wasn't first sent to that church of Damascus in order to be a member of the family of God. Did you catch what I said? Paul was converted right there on the road to Damascus and Jesus didn't say, well, you're not a member of my church yet. Get to Damascus and get your name on the membership books. Did he say that to him? Absolutely not. He became a member as soon as he was converted right there in the road, blinded by the light of Christ. He was sent blinded to Damascus. And friends, I've got to tell you, this is really a simple concept that children can understand. Isn't that true? What happens all too often, though, is that people are adopted as members in God's family upon conversion, and then they join fallen organizations. There's a difference. Think about it. Think about it. Why are there so many of God's people in Babylon that need to be called out? They are in the wrong organization. A part of the church of Antichrist. If they stay in too long, what's going to happen to them? They'll become just as corrupted as the rest. So we have a work to do in defining Babylon and defining God's church and calling them out of one into the other. Organizations. See? That's the danger of it all. If you're in the wrong organization, it could lead to your eternal ruin. If you're in the right organized group, it can lead you to eternal life. The organization isn't the church necessarily. Okay? As members of the church, we're to exhibit the characteristics of the head of the church, aren't we? The head of the body. We learn those characteristics by walking with Jesus each moment the rest of our life on earth. And actually throughout eternity. 
God's Amazing Grace, page 228. I think I shared this last time. Spiritual life must be sustained. You know, if you don't uh, uh, eat anything, you're not going to sustain your physical life, are you? If Susan doesn't eat that whole bag of salad, she's going to go hungry, and before too long, she's going to starve herself. Spiritual life must also be sustained. She says this, by what? Communion with Christ through His Word. The mind must dwell upon it, she says. The heart must be filled with it. The Word of God laid up in the heart and sacredly cherished. Do you sacredly cherish your Bible? How do you treat your Bible? It's not an ordinary book. Do you throw it on the shelf, stack other books on top of it? I do not. The Word of God laid up in the heart and sacredly cherished and obeyed, she says, through the power of the grace of Christ can make man right and keep him right. When His words of instruction have been received and have taken possession of us. There's a key. What did we say about uh, in Christ's object lessons? Our will becomes His will. Our mind becomes His mind. See this? Takes possession of us. And have taken possession of us, Jesus is to us an abiding presence, controlling our thoughts and ideas and actions. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus is controlling your thoughts, ideas, and actions, does it then make sense that you would not be in His church until your name is written in the local church book? I'll tell you. And it's happening all around the world as I speak. Fallen organizations will disfellowship all who are controlled by Christ. It's going to happen. You believe that? Mm-hmm. Why do you believe it? Yeah. Well, you see it already. You see it already. But why is it happening? Is God's church going to disfellowship those who are in God's will? We've got to think. Do you realize that even the disciples had a difficult time uh, understanding who the church is? And they walked, talked, and lived with Jesus. So it can be, you know, tradition is a, is a hard thing. Mm-hmm. It's a hard thing. The disciples, they had a hard time leaving the traditions of men as to what is the fellowship of the church of God. And Jesus tried to teach them over and over and over again. Let me give you an example. John chapter 9. John chapter 9, verse 46. Then there arose a reasoning among them, that's the disciples, which of them should be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him, and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Okay, He's trying to teach him here about God's kingdom, God's organization, God's church. There's a principle right there. 
God's church doesn't have politics. God's church doesn't have elbowing to see who's going to be the elder and elbowing and who's going to be leading out this and who's going to be doing that. Look at verse 49. This is a key too. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And what did Jesus say? You have done well, John. Is that what Jesus said? John chapter 9, verse 49. Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. See, we're the chosen. We're the called. This is what John's saying to Jesus. What did Jesus say? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Is that what he said to John? John didn't understand who the church was. Jesus said, verse 50, Forbid him not. That's a smack in the face to John. No, John. Forbid him not. For he that is not against us is for us. He wouldn't be able to cast these things out in my name if he wasn't in me. How can this person be doing the works of Jesus? This person was not in the group of disciples that were with Jesus, so that means that he was not a member of the church, right? Wrong. Wrong. The person had received Jesus into their heart and instantly became a member of the family of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not teaching, and the Bible does not teach, that we're not to be organized. There are many statements the prophet of the Lord says that God's people are a denominated people. The problem is, people don't understand what the definition of denomination is. (laughs) They've skewed that, too. There's proper gospel order in that God is a God of order. And we are to be organized as a people for service. But being a member of this organization or that organization does not necessarily mean that you are a member of the family of God. You can be a member of the family of God and be in Babylon. Right? Isn't that what the Mark of the Beast is all about? Drawing a line between the two churches to see who belongs to whom? It's rather amazing how powerful deception really is. And the only way to keep from being deceived is to what? Submit to Christ. Moment by moment each day. And those who do submit will receive the love of God. And we saw this in part one of this study. John 13 verse 34. Jesus said to His disciples, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that's a key. Because people don't have a right definition today of what love is and what's being spoken of here. Jesus says that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. What kind of love? The love that I have loved you with. 
Now remember, we talked about the Greeks had three words to convey the ideas, try to express our word love in this context. Agapan, philine, and aran. Remember that? And we found that the noun form of agapan is agape. And it is a love of the highest and truest form. Because it is our human description of what God is. See? And John says God is love. It implies reverence for God and respect for each other. It's a divine principle of thought and action that actually modifies our character. It governs our impulses. It it controls our passions. Whereas the other love is controlled by passions. But this kind of love ennobles our affection. From Signs of the Times, December 28, 1891. Wherever a soul is united to Christ, there is love. But she doesn't stop there. She says, whatever else the character may possess, it is valueless without love. Not love that is soft, weak, sentimental, which is the other Greek words. But such love as dwells in the heart of Christ. Without love, everything else profiteth nothing, for it cannot possibly represent Christ, who is love. And when we have agape, we will love all people as Jesus has loved us. Isn't that true? It was uh, Signs of the Times, December 28, 1891. Should be in the notes. That one. That one. Signs of the Times, December 28, 1891. It might not be, I can't remember. The thing is, when you have that kind of love, and you have agape, you'll be constrained to share that love with others. And when we have that love, we will be a vibrant member of the body of Christ. We may not be in an organization yet, but we're going to do what we can to share the love of God with everybody. And so, when you do organize for service, the church will then be, a vi- will be vibrant in Christ, and that's going to show the world that we are His disciples. It's going to draw believers into close bonds of love and godly fellowship. A vibrant fellowship of believers living in Christ, doing His works. That's the definition of the church. It's one of the character traits. And God calls His people to assemble together in Christian fellowship for worship, for instruction, for encouragement, to pray together, to bond together. That's one of the the, the things the Sabbath is for. To provoke each other into love and good works. To exhort one another. Remember I shared last time. The Sabbath is a gift for fellowship. From our loving God. And speaking of true fellowship on the Sabbath day. I want to touch this. How are we to behave while in fellowship? Especially knowing we are in the presence of God. Reverently. Exactly. Are we just Saturday keepers or are we Sabbath keepers? Do we treat it like a common day or do we treat it as the special day that it is, that God uh, designed it to be? The Sabbath day is a special day, isn't it? It's a special day. It's not like all the others. It's a day that is to be held in reverence, like Susan says. Reverence, that is, respect mingled with love and awe. 
And it's shown by making a difference between uh, that which belongs to God and that which belongs to man. Between that which is holy and that which is common. Like I said, it's not a common day. As adults, we are to be examples to the children. Isn't that right? We're to teach them how to behave in the sanctuary of God. They learn by our example. Nothing that is sacred, nothing that pertains to the worship of God is to be treated with carelessness and indifference. There were men in the Old Testament who God devoured with fire because of their indifference, their carelessness in the sanctuary. There is to be a distinction between how we treat the Lord's house and common ordinary buildings. How we treat the Sabbath day and the other six days of the week. How we treat His book, (laughs) you see, and other books written by man. How we handle His money and the other 90% that He leaves to us. What a generous God. Reverence for God is a divine requirement, friends. It's found in His law, the fourth commandment. And it is a condition of fellowshipping with God. So when we come into this sanctuary, each Sabbath, we come into the presence of God. Do you believe that? How should we then behave? Should we treat this place as a common place? How should we teach our children to behave? Is it sacred to us as we profess it to be? Are we reverent? Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 20 says, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. That's not in the notes, by the way. Habakkuk 2 and verse 20. Uh, When uh, uh, I have a moment after the services... Roland, I, I will email you the scripts for part two so that you can print and get to Jerry and get to get it out. I apologize for that. I thought I had sent that to, to Roland. The Lord is in His holy temple. It's His. It's not ours. It's His. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Reverence. From Prophets and Kings, page 236. Reverence, she says, is a grace that should be carefully cherished. Every child should be taught to show true reverence for God. Never should his name be spoken lightly or thoughtlessly. Angels, as they speak it, veil their faces. With what reverence should we, who are fallen and sinful, take it upon our lips? In Ecclesiastes 5, Verses 1 and 2. Solomon said, and who was Solomon? Wisest man. man. He was given a double portion of the Spirit. Isn't that what he asked for? That was a wise thing to ask for, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Wisest man, we're told. He said, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, And let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. What's he saying here? He says keep thy foot. You know that's equivalent to the expression watch your step. That's what he's saying. When you go in before God, watch your step. 
The fools uh, do evil when they enter the house of God by not keeping their foot or watching their step, not being ready to hear what God has to say to them. They're unaware of Him in whose presence they stand. Their thoughts are upon earthly things, and as a result, their words are rash, hasty, and many. They talk a lot in the house of God. Those who attend church, so unaware of the presence of God that they think and converse on nothing but secular things, common things, common topics, are classed here by Solomon as fools. Isn't that interesting? Their worship is a mere form, isn't it? They are Saturday keepers. They commit evil, Solomon says. Ignorant of God's spiritual requirements, they fail to worship Him sincerely. They fail to worship Him intelligently. A fool isn't intelligent, is he? No. Not necessarily. (laughs) There are educated fools. They sin in their self-imposed ignorance, and as a result, their worship and their gifts, thoughtlessly offered, are unacceptable to God. Because they're mixing the common with the sacred. John 4 and verse 24, John said, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And when we fellowship with God on the Sabbath day, we're to have a quiet spirit. We read that in Habakkuk. Praising God in song and in our heart with discipline and order, not with a a bedlam of noise and confusion. That's Babylon, friends. When we speak, let our words be a praise and glory to our Creator. Always remembering how holy God truly is. We must talk quietly when it is necessary. Not about common things, if at all possible. Sometimes uh, it's in a discussion, but it's in, in relation to learning more about God. Okay. That's why I want to talk about fellowship here a little bit more right fellowship and wrong fellowship because there is that. When we enter through that door, we are on holy ground. Do you believe that? Mm -hmm. It isn't the building itself that's holy, is it? But the presence of God that makes it holy. And remember, wherever Christ is, there is His church, there is holy ground. When God, veiled as a burning bush, spoke to Moses, it wasn't the bush that was holy but the presence of God that made it holy. We read that in Exodus 3, verses 4 and 5. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him, that's Moses, out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Don't get any closer. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is what? Holy ground. The Bible says where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, He's in the midst of them, and they are on holy ground. So we must walk softly and quietly in this place. Amen? Amen. There are to be no distractions in the sanctuary. No games. No food, except maybe a bottle for infants or something like that. No drinks, etc. I mean, water. You know what I'm saying, right? Our children are to be with us and learn from our reverent behavior. 
That's why a number of the churches, the bigger churches, build mothers' rooms. But they've turned into nurseries or, or playrooms. Those are to be training rooms to train the children how to behave in the sanctuary. They're not daycares. That's what exactly. That's exactly how they treat them. Mothers gab on common things. Children play, and the children learn from their mother's behavior, and they take that into the sanctuary of God. That's not the intention of it. See, all attention is to be to God is to be in worshiping Him in the right spirit. And that's why we are here, isn't it? I hope. We're not here to entertain or to be entertained. We are to be holy and worship and praise a holy God. And we must also take part in as much as possible. We must also expect a blessing because God wants to bless us. That's true Christian fellowship on the Holy Sabbath day, friends, and that's what it means to fellowship with God. And God wants to fellowship with us. Don't think that He doesn't. After our first parents fell, remember that God came looking for Adam and Eve because He loved them and He wanted to improve their spiritual condition. They had fallen. God wanted to fellowship with them and He searched them out. He didn't wait for them to come to Him. It would have never happened. Do you realize that? If it was left for us to come to God, we never would. God created us to be social beings that loved each other as He loves us. He wanted us to fellowship with each other in His presence. At the very beginning, it was a vibrant Christian fellowship. This is why... You read throughout the Bible. You, you see this throughout the Bible. Exodus 25.8 Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is what? God with us. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's calling us to fellowship. His fellowship, not our fellowship. There's a difference between man fellowships, especially unrighteous man, that's what I'm speaking of, and God's fellowship. 1 John 1, verses 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that she, may, that she also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. We talked about this last time. And I will tell you, friends, when we fellowship together in such a presence, our joy will indeed be full. 1 John 1, 7. Our scripture reading for today. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Well, you're not a member of the church yet, so how can you have fellowship one with another? As soon as you accept the Lord, you're walking in the light, you have... Didn't I say that? We have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we are unwilling to come together in good Christian fellowship, then we're spiritually ill. Or we may be spiritually dead. And let me tell you, that a church that has Jesus at the head will not be a dead church. Our God's not the God of the dead, is He? No. He's the God of the living. If you are in a spiritually dead church, then I have to tell you that God is not there. He's not the head. He may be there trying to woo people, but He's not the head of that church. Before God will grace us with His presence, there must be certain conditions met. Do you believe that? He doesn't show up for everybody just because He blessed the seventh day. Before He would bless the temple that Solomon built, there were conditions that had to be met. Not just for the building itself, but the people as well. When the children of Israel, if you'll recall, were at the base of Mount Sinai, there were conditions that had to be met before they could be in the presence of God. God has not changed, beloved. There are still conditions. If there were no conditions, then nothing would really matter, would it? It wouldn't really matter. I want to ask you something. Thinking of our scripture reading today, 1 John 1, 7. Did you notice that that was a conditional statement about fellowship? Look at it again. 1 John 1, 7. First John 1 John 1.7 But if we walk in the light, just a little two-letter word there. If. If is half a life. L-I-F-E. If is half a life. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. It's conditional. In order to be a vibrant Christian fellowship, we must walk in the light as He, Jesus, is in the light. What does that mean? It means that there are conditions to fellowship with God. Not just anyone can fellowship with God. And not everybody can fellowship with everybody and it be okay in God's eye. There are conditions that God has laid out as to who we are to fellowship with. And it is only to be with those who walk in the light. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Remember, the greater context of our study is defining God's church. I'm not saying we are not to fellowship with others at all. But remember, as Christians, we are to be in the world, but what? Not Not of the world. We are to share the love of God and the truth of His Word with all, but when it comes to the church, not everyone is to be a member. Or like I said, nothing would matter at all. There are conditions to membership into the kingdom of God. Is that what the Bible teaches? If there are conditions to be in the kingdom of God, that means there are conditions to being in His church because His church is the kingdom of God. (laughs) Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 5. Let's go there. I'm going to be moving here. He said, I've got a lot to share. Paul talks about it. Ephesians 5, verse 1. He says, Be ye therefore followers of God, as dear children. 
and walk in love, he says, as Christ also hath loved us. Didn't we read that before? And hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. There are conditions, there are definitions of who is a saint and who is not. Verse 4. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient. Now, the apostle is not speaking against innocent humor. Okay? Because many people have a sense of humor. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking against jesting that is coarse and low. Adult, they'll call it today. You know, juvenile. Rude, crude, crude, coarse, and common. Exactly. And we've got to be careful about our words. Right, beloved? That's what he's saying. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of what? Disobedience. See, there are conditions, aren't there? What's he saying in verse 7? Be not ye therefore partakers with them, all of them that he just named. That means what? Don't fellowship with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now ye are what? Light in the Lord, walk as children of light. Didn't we read that in 1 John 1, 7? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Paul's saying it. Saying the same thing as John. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And then he comes right out and says it. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but rather what? Reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Beloved, if you haven't figured it out now, I don't know, but this subject is very serious to understand correctly who God's church is. There are thousands upon thousands who are being misled about who the church is and who can be a member. There are thousands who are being misled as to what constitutes the weed of God and the tares, so they will remain right where they are in a fallen organization. Satan's playing for keeps, and we better be right about this subject. Amen? Amen. We better know what we believe and why we believe it. Paul is giving us sober counsel right here in Ephesians about healthy, vibrant fellowship and diseased fellowship between true Christian fellowship and fellowship with Antichrist. Not only will the members of Christ's body, His church, not participate in unfruitful works, they will not countenance them or have any sympathy with those who do the unfruitful works of darkness. 
Who's he talking about here? What is the contrast? What is the conditions of fellowship? He goes to Galatians 5 and he lays it out to them. The church of Galatia. Galatians 5 verse 19. What are these unfruitful works of darkness? Galatians 5.19 Now the works of the flesh, you see, are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies. That's a pretty long list. He doesn't stop. Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, to the church of Ephesians, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That means they are not members of the, the body of Christ. We're not to fellowship with them. And not just that, he said we are to reprove them. Isn't that what he said? By word and life, Christians should be a continuous rebuke to the world of evil. You believe that? It's not sufficient to have no fellowship with the works of evil. They must be reproved. How else can they be saved unless they are told they need a Savior? No, friends, the Christian can't be neutral. Can't be a passive observer in the face of wickedness. We have to be aggressive in exposing and denunciating sin. Sympathy with afflicted men must not degenerate into an easygoing indifference or a sentimental tolerance. Otherwise, it's going to be hard to show that we have no fellowship with the workers of darkness. People will not see a difference between us and those of the world. They won't know that we're Christ's disciples. So when someone in the professed church tells me that open sinners are the tares in the church and there's nothing to be done about it until the harvest... I grieve tremendously for they are actually condoning sin and they will lose their eternal life unless they wake up to their true condition. They're going to be lulled into it. By beholding, we become changed. A vibrant Christian fellowship does not condone sin in any form, friends. I mean, did Paul mince words in his epistle about this? Did he mince any words? Am I missing that elusive scripture that says that there's a grand exception for the professed church? Is it somewhere in the scriptures? I just can't find it. No, friends, there's no grand exception. The tares are not open sinners to be reproved and removed from fellowship by us, lest we uproot some of the wheat. Now I'm going to speak to the differences between the wheat and the tares and open sinners here pretty soon. God's church is to be or will be a living church. It'll be a healthy church. It'll be a fellowship of those who love God, bring glory to Him. It'll be a church that deals with sin as it's supposed to deal with sin, as a people who are living in the time of the judgment. And this is essentially where I left off last time. And as such, there are certain characteristics of the church in our time that will be manifest among its members, showing the true fellowship of believers from the false. I'm speaking about the time we're living in, the judgment hour. How can a church profess to be God's people and yet deny the very truth that shows it to be the remnant church of God? 
professed church denies the judgment. It denies, in a court of law, the three angels' messages, that that was the mission of the church. How can it do that and still, well, of course, I mean, it can claim to be, but how can it be? It can't. (laughs) The Bible defines God's church. God's people will be made evident more by their actions than by their profession. Revelation 14, 7, first angel's message. Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. You see, the test is coming to show who you worship. You're either going to worship Him who made the heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters, or you're going to worship Antichrist, who professes to be the God of this earth. In 1844 A.D., Jesus and His Father in Heaven left the first compartment, the sanctuary, and entered the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, to begin this investigative judgment. What does that mean for us? I mean, what is the importance of it for those who live today in the end times? Is there any importance to it? Yeah. What about this truth shows the world who God's people really are and who they are not? Ah, exactly. The way we live. God expected His ancient people to serve Him faithfully every day in the year, didn't He? And He accepted their services. But when the Day of Atonement came, there were special requirements laid upon them during that day. Which, if they failed to observe those requirements during that day, they were cut off from the people of Israel and they lost their eternal life. That is what the judgment's all about. It is a life and death decision as to whether we repent or not, friends. They had to observe the requirements on that day in order to remain written in the book of life. And God has accepted the service of His people down through all the ages from that time. But when the anti-typical Day of Atonement arrived in 1844, that's the real judgment... And the investigative judgment there opened in the heavenly sanctuary. God expects His congregation on earth at this time to fulfill their part of the judgment just as faithfully as Christ is our high priest ministering today. God requires special service of His people, His church, now, today, since 1844. He requires a personal work from each of us. He requires a work of His church. And those who in the investigative judgment are accounted worthy, before it's all said and done, are going to live for a time without a mediator. They're going to live without Jesus mediating because the books will be closed. The judgment's going to come to an end. And their experience is is different. Their experience is different from any other company that has ever lived on the earth. The 144,000 that's spoken of in Revelation there symbolize these people. God's church will be a spiritually healthy church, right? It'll be fellowshipping together in preparation for His soon return. Isn't that what we want to prepare ourselves and others for Christ's second coming, don't we? Readying ourselves and others to see Jesus face to face? A church that denies the sanctuary message, and thus the investigative judgment, and thus the first angel's message, 
And thus the second and third, because you reject the first, you reject the, the second and third. Well, they're not the remnant church of prophecy. So I say, consider my statement very carefully because I don't want you to be deceived here. I shared this with you last time, the Great Controversy, page 488. The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. Well, you can't do that if you reject it. All need a knowledge for themselves of the position and work of their great high priest. That's Jesus. Otherwise... It will be impossible. That's a strong word, friends. It will be impossible for them to exercise the faith which is essential at this time or to occupy the position which God designs them to fill. That, my friends, is a gripping statement. If we wish to have the faith we need for this time or to occupy the position God has for us, we must clearly understand the subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment. So let me share some of that with you. In the ancient service, if an individual, I'm talking about the Day of Atonement, if an individual failed to keep the Day of Atonement as God directed, his sins were not confessed over the scapegoat by the high priest, Instead, he was cut off from among the people of God. Leviticus 23, verses 28 to 30. And ye shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. This is serious stuff. It's life and death. And I'm talking eternal. The individual who during the antitypical day of atonement or the investigative judgment, that's today, that person who thinks that Christ will plead his case while he himself ignores the work God has laid upon the congregation for this time will find at last his name blotted out of the book of life. This is serious stuff. And we need to understand it, the prophet said. Now, friends, it is true that we are saved by faith in our high priest. But faith without works is dead, James says. The works are the fruits of our faith. If we have a living faith, we shall gladly do as the Lord directs. Isn't that true? So, four things were required of each individual member of ancient Israel on the Day of Atonement that 24-hour period in which that typical work of atonement was performed, and which was an example or a shadow, Paul says, of the real work. And I want to share them with you, as they are what the true church of God will be teaching and performing as they fellowship together in preparation for Christ's return. Leviticus 23, go back to it. Verse 27. Also on the tenth day of this seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a, number one, holy convocation unto you, and ye shall, number two, afflict your souls, and number three, offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, and ye shall, number four, do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. Four things there. I'm going to share with you from the Jewish Encyclopedia about this. 
Day of Atonement. On the first day of the seventh month came the blowing of trumpets, which was to call the attention of the people to the Day of Atonement ten days later. The intervening nine days became days of heart-searching, of preparation for the Day of Atonement, the Day of Judgment that sealed their destiny. They believe that on that day it is sealed who shall live and who are to die. Friends, we live in a very serious time. The Day of Atonement was to be a holy convocation where all the people were required to attend worship. We too are required to attend public worship with the saints, are we not? We're to fellowship together. Hebrews 10, verse 21. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful who promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, the day of Christ, the second coming. Now friends, I'll tell you, the person that takes no pleasure in meeting with those of like faith to worship God has lost faith in the near coming of our high priest from the heavenly sanctuary. They need a revival of heart. And we can encourage that if they would fellowship. But only Christ can change the heart and revive it. Amen? The second thing we see is that each individual was to afflict their soul. Now I'm giving you the synopsis here. The summary of it. I could go into great, greater detail, but we're, we're running out of time here. They are to afflict their soul. Search their heart. Put away every sin. Spend more time in prayer. For the Holy Spirit shows us who we are and our sins. From the book Lift Him Up, page 330. We are now living in the great day of atonement. In the typical service, while the high priest was making the atonement for Israel, all were required to afflict their souls by repentance of sin and humiliation before the Lord, lest they be cut off from among the people. In like manner... That means, like as they did, in like manner, all who would have their names retained in the book of life should now, in the few remaining days of their probation, afflict their souls before God by sorrow for sin and true repentance. There must be deep, faithful searching of heart. The light, frivolous spirit indulged by so many professed Christians must be put away. There is earnest warfare before all who would subdue the evil tendencies that strive for the mastery. Everyone must be tested and found without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But if you go into that time knowing that you have searched your heart, repented of every sin, you can have confidence, the Bible says, in the day of judgment. With the afflicting of the soul was connected abstinence from food. <laughs> this was so forcibly impressed, friends, upon the minds of ancient Israel that even today the Jews fast upon the tenth day of the seventh month, the Day of Atonement. We, we know it probably more as Yom Kippur. The typical Day of Atonement covered a period of 24 hours. The antitypical Day of Atonement covers a period of years. 
since 1844. In the type, there was a fast of 24 hours required. Well, we can't fast every day, can we? During this one day, there was to be complete control of the appetite. That's what it was. And it was a type of the self-control to be exercised during the antitypical period that we're in. God designs that His people shall be masters of their appetites. That's what got us in trouble in the first place. We weren't supposed to eat the fruit. But we're supposed to keep control of the body. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.27, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. God calls upon His people to be masters of their appetites instead of slaves to it. That they may have clearer minds, see, to comprehend divine truth and follow the work of the high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. He calls upon His people to afflict their souls, to control their appetite, to partake of food that will give good blood and a clear mind to discern spiritual truths. I can go on and on and on about that. Health reform, friends, is part of the first angel's message. That's how you give glory to God. The third requirement laid upon the typical congregation on the Day of Atonement was to offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. The offerings made by fire were totally consumed upon the altar. That's a key to understand. They were completely burnt up. In the anatype, we don't offer burnt offerings of bullocks and rams anymore, do we? But God expects us to fulfill the anatype of the offering consumed upon the altar. How do we do that? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul says... God desires that the whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That the entire life of the Christian be laid upon the altar. Ready to be used as the Lord directs. No one can do this if they don't daily accept Christ as their sin offering and choose to do His will. Dying to self every moment. That's why Paul said, I die daily. I have sacrificed my body, my will on the altar for God. Completely. The fourth requirement was that the ancient congregation kept the Day of Atonement as a ceremonial Sabbath. All work was laid aside. The entire thought was given to seeking God and serving Him. God's work was given the first thought during uh, the entire day. And such was the type. But again, it doesn't follow that on the anti-typical day, the day we're living in, that no one should work at all since 1844. Paul said in Romans, we're not to be slothful in business. Right? He promises to bless us in temporal things if we fulfill the anti-type by looking after His work and service first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and His work. See? And our temporal interests second. Then you'll get all these things. See? Are we seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness above all else? That's what's being spoken of there. Who will fulfill the antitype and not forsake the assembling together of God's people for worship? Who will keep a clear mind by controlling the appetite and a pure heart by prayer and deep heart searching? Who will lay all their interests upon God's altar to be used for His glory and never let the cares of this life crowd out God's work or the study of His Word? 
those four things. We live in a very serious time. What is our reaction to the opportunity we have to fellowship with God? Why do we come into this place? We meet together to worship God in spirit and in truth, don't we? To praise God and thank Him for His goodness to us. To gain instruction, counsel, and a blessing from His Word. To rest from the battle. To share the blessings of God with each other in holy fellowship. Isn't that why we come here? We come here to be with God, don't we? God comes here to be with us. Jesus is here with us today. And they shall call His name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is what? God with us. Those who walk with the Lord will fellowship together, friends, in good Christian fellowship. Those who love God above all things, those are His people. That is His church. Because God is with His people, and where God is, there is His church. May we walk in the light as He is in the light and experience a vibrant Christian fellowship from now to forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you so much for the Holy Sabbath day. We thank you for your holy word, for the inspired writings of the end time prophet. We thank you for all this instruction, all that has been given to us that we may know that you are the true God, that we may know what is your organization and isn't, that we may know who belongs to your family and who does not. I pray, Lord, that you will continue to be with each and every one of us as we study to show ourselves approved, as we live in this day of atonement, that we may be made right by your Holy Spirit so that we can enter into the gates of heaven and fellowship with you forever. I pray this in Jesus' name.